HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and today I'm here with one of the very, very greatest sommeliers in the industry, uh, Mr. Aldo Som, the chef sommelier of Le Bernardin Restaurant, um, New York's uh, longest four-star restaurant uh it's held that for for more years than anyone else very impressive um also the brand ambassador for the absolutely stunningly beautiful zalto glassware um working on a new wine bar um coming up that hopefully you'll be able to give us just a little bit of information about i know it's in early stages um and uh you know winner of the best sommelier in the world competition uh just very excited to have you on the show. I don't know how else to, to describe it, but super excited that you're here. Well, good morning. Yeah, the, you're, you're giving credibility to In The Drink by, by being here. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> good, good morning. Thank you for, uh, for, for getting up early and, uh, and being on the show. I know uh, I, I, beyond everything that uh, you're doing outside the restaurant, you're, uh, you spend a lot of time on the floor in the restaurant as well. You are for sure a working sommelier. Um, tell us about what, what your week is like and, and how, how you divide all the various things that you're doing. Uh, well, <laughs> my week is quite special. No, uh, I mean, look, for me, it's, many people think I work a lot. Well, that's relative. Um, I got very lucky because I love what I do. And it's exciting to me every single day. But normally, you know, I start on Monday like everybody else around 10.30. And... Basically, yeah, start at a restaurant, start my tastings, uh, go into lunch service, um, which basically leads me pretty much directly into dinner service, and then we go straight until, yeah, 11, 11.30, midnight, depending on how busy it is. Um, Wednesday is my day off, today. Yes. 
Oh, so, yeah. wow. Thank you for <laughs> coming your day off. Wow. <laughs> However, I go straight after that yeah. in another meeting. So that's, um, that's part of it. Yeah, and then we go uh, Thursday, Friday, you know, more intense lunch and dinner services. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the tastings. And Saturday, we have only dinner service, which takes normally a little bit longer. And Sunday's my day off. So Wednesday and Sunday are your days off. Yeah. Wow. And Sunday's the restaurant open as well? No, we, yeah. we're closed. Okay. So you have one day off. There's only one day the restaurant's open that you're not there. Yeah. Really, really impressive. Uh, I remember the moment when, uh, I remember when you came to New York. It was an exciting thing for people in New York. Um, you'd won the best Somalia in Austria four years in a row. Um, and you came to work as the uh, the the wine director for uh, Valsay and Blaugans and Cafe Sabarski and it, it was a, a big exciting thing. The New York Magazine said you were the best sommelier in, in New York. Uh, someone who came from out of town. What attracted you to to New York City? Uh, I imagine at that point in your career you could have gone anywhere in the world. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, I'm always realistic and I'm always kind of humble. Uh, and you have to always know where it came from. Uh, I came to America in 2004. It was actually July 2004. Uh, it was, I think, 4th of July on top of it. Um, I came to America for a number of reasons. The main reason was I was competing at that time actively. And I realized uh, in on international stage, uh, the really serious competitors, uh, they lived all in a different in a foreign country. Because it's it's you can you're not allowed to compete in a native language. You have to compete in a foreign language, and my English was yeah okay, but not good enough. I had to focus more on my, what I wanted to say rather than what was asked, and I realized it very quickly. And so I said to myself, uh, I can do that too. I changed my life completely, and moved to America. Uh, was a very tough call, without a doubt. My best friend asked me, "Are you completely out of your mind?" I mean. Right now in Austria, you're huge. And you're going to America and start basically from scratch. And by the way, it wasn't London far enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I'm always a person, you know, I mean, your head, and your, inst- uh, your head is always tells you one thing. Your instinct tells you something different. And very often you have to listen to your instinct, even though your head might be completely against it. Even my father was not 100% on it. He said, well, uh, I'm sure you thought about it. And I'm sure you know what you're doing. Uh, that's a pretty hard <laughs> statement for him. <laughs> wow. So, What drew you to the competitions? Why, why was this something that was interesting for you? Well, I did my sommelier diploma in 1998, uh, the first part. I finished in, uh, in 99 completely. In Austria, it takes two years. Um, the first part, basically, I joined, at that time, the Austrian competitor for the World Championship. Mm-hmm. And we did tours through Austria, and it was in the middle of my exam, so I had always basically f- always go back uh, to write the exam and go back into another wine country then. And I saw basically the finals, what they had to do. And I noticed basically the adrenaline and the, the tension, even though the competition even started then. I said, this is absolutely insane, and never ever will do that. Well, life teaches you one thing, you know, never say never. Uh, a year later... This competitor, actually, my trainer in the sommelier education, said, you know, you would be ideal. You're so competitive. You're so driven. Uh, you would be ideal. If you want, I train you. And I said, who? Okay. So I, I said, okay, let's let's give it a shot. And I started training. And, yeah, 
the first competition became right second, which was basically, yeah, I was myself surprised. Wow. So what was the, the training process like? Was it like Rocky and you were running up the steps of a government building? No, right? No, no. <laughs> it's very often seen that. No, 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 no. I mean, look, training in Somalia is always a little different because uh, it's basically like you see in the movie Some, uh, which is actually a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're training, of course, uh, theory. You're training blind tastings. Uh, you're training service components. It's actually a little bit more stronger service-driven because you have to be very, very precise, very sharp, and you have constant time pressure. And another co- huge component of us was because, look, you don't have to pass an exam there. You have to win. Uh, so basically the first, uh, uh, the second is already the first wi- uh, loser, you know, in, harshly said, but that's what it is. So you have to train yourself that you win, which makes the ball game mentally completely different because... Uh, I mean, in the, in the early stages of my competition life was, you know, I was the hunter because they were all the big guys and I had to chase them. But, you know, with time it turned and I suddenly became the fox and not the hunter anymore. And that causes you a lot of uh, pressure and especially, you know, it's also he trained me a little bit mentally, you know, how to work out under under pressure, you know, because we human beings are in certain moments a little weak and fear of failure is a huge part of our life. And that makes us do very often silly things. And what was your greatest technique for dealing with this pressure? Oh, that took me a long time, you know. Uh, I mean, give you give you a true fact. Um, in the first international competitions, the pressure, I pushed myself so hard up. Mm-hmm. And the pressure from outside came, you know, you're doing interviews, you're doing TV. Um, it became very strong. And whenever I flew, I got always an ear infection. And that was basically my excuse, because as soon as you have an ear infection, your whole limbic system doesn't work anymore. And you're basically done. And I know I realized just, you know, with, with coachings that that basically was pure fear of failure. As soon as basically I noticed that, uh, we worked on it. And, you know, now I got to learn, you know, that um, life without fear is not is not life. It's part of you. What are some of the things that you've learned throughout the process of going through all these competitions, other than just the the uh, facts and the specific service points? Um, what were some of the greatest lessons that are applicable to your life now? Well, you work always with the best of the best. That's what they come down. Now, whether they're active competitors mm-hmm. or whether they're retired competitors, or even you meet great personalities outside of it, you know? And that connected, you reach other people. It's a huge network all of a sudden, and that gets turning faster. On the other hand, it's, it opens doors for you. Uh, doors which you, as a regular civilian, have no access to. Uh, and the biggest part is, for, for me today, extremely useful is, I, I learned about myself, how I function. And I became very calm, because I know I can deal with pressure. It's no yeah. problem. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, opened up a great door. You uh, then took the chef sommelier job at Le Bernardin, as uh, I mentioned before. Uh, truly, one of the the greatest restaurants here in uh, here in New York. Uh, something uh, on a, on a lighter note. I'm so I'm I'm curious about the the title chef sommelier. You know, we had Jancis Robinson on last week, and before we started the show, she was like, "So you call yourself a wine director? Like, when, what's the deal? Like, some people call themselves sommeliers." Some people call themselves wine director. Some people call themselves chef sommelier. 
What's the deal? I'm like, I don't, I don't really know, Jan. Says I, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm curious to hear. Is it just because this is a traditional title of a traditional French restaurant? I definitely would say so. I mean, look, uh, today, you know, many, as soon as you get really established, many people leave the industry, leave the floor, uh, which I think is a little shame because that's part of our, what you're doing, that's part of our job. Now, being every day on the floor, uh, I'm the first person who would say, yes, it's hard. Um, but, you know, you meet, what I love, basically, you meet every day great people. Uh, and that's so basically refreshing for me. Mm-hmm. And you deal with so many great wines on top of it. I mean, look, if I don't work at Le Barada anymore, I'm sure I drink only half of the great wines, if I'm lucky. Yeah, so you open great wine all the time. You have uh, how many selections on your on your list? Uh, currently about 1,000, but, you know, it keeps coming in and coming out. It's extraordinary. And, and some of the, the truly greatest wines in the world. What, what gets you excited these days? You, you've had so much great wine. Uh, what wines get you get your you know your blood flowing? You know, one thing I learned that in fact I had just last night a customer, uh, and I get I know right now a lot of customers and they trust me. I had you know you worked there and they trust. They said just you just bring, uh, and I gave them the wine blind. And at first they were a little bit thrown off. I said, listen, I do not want to blind taste you. I just what's for me most important is, do you like it or you do you don't like it because. I give you a good example. We, today we are so brand driven. As soon as we see a brand, we immediately we like it or dislike it. Uh, we haven't even smelled or tasted nothing. Mm-hmm. It's and I think that's a shame because in this case you you know you miss so many opportunities. There's so many great and exciting wines out there in all price categories. You know, of course, I'm always seen as basically opening thousand dollar bottles of wine. Well, you know, I wish I could afford that at home, but it's not that the, I'm not there yet. <laughs> It's going to take me probably a couple of decades, <laughs> but uh, no. Or did they like the wine? They love the wine, but it's 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 normally something they don't drink, mm-hmm. and they enjoyed it with the food too. Look, very often we just open about the wine and talk about the wine, but when you, come at, when you travel to France, you will notice one thing. They always have food with their wine, unless they, they you know, sell and taste, but that's a whole different story, but... Traditionally, you have always food with wine, and it's basically part of a ceremony. It's part of our dining culture, and it's an art, uh, you know it's a it's a style of living. You know, basically, you know. Yeah. Um, all right, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back with more of Aldo Som here on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The following is an actor reading an actual customer email from Heritage Foods USA. My family and I enjoyed the Heritage turkey. It was far superior to the regular mass-produced turkeys in terms of flavor and texture. Absolutely delicious and worth the difference in price. We will never go back to the regular turkeys. It made our holidays more enjoyable. Thank you, Heritage Foods USA. Heritage Foods USA hopes you had a great holiday season. For more specials on pork, beef, and other meats, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. You are listening to All Night Long by the California Honey Drops here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
And we're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, here with Aldo Som of Le Bernardin Restaurant. Um, and we were talking, you know, Aldo asked me, uh, I apologize, I asked Aldo, what was that wine that, that you served uh, that those two guests? And it was the Tatomer uh, Gruner Veltliner from California. Uh, and these were, these were big Francophiles. Uh, why did you feel that that was the, the right wine to serve those people? Well, a number of things, because they normally drink only French wine, mm-hmm. and they torture me about that. And everything else doesn't do it for them outside. And but I know also look the reason why it is it's a game you know and it's also a game of appreciation. But I looked over the menu and they had such a distinct menu and I said, listen, uh, that might not be the first choice, but with the menu in that context, they're gonna love it and they were really right on it. And now you're involved in making little Gruner Veltlina yourself. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I come to the came to the point in 2008 um, where I realized I'm criticizing wine on a daily basis, which means also I criticize winemakers. And then I said, "Wait a second, he, um, you know, criticizing is the easiest thing in life. You know, it's you're pointing the finger at somebody. You know, that's very simple. But do it better. That's a whole different thing. You know, and it's such a humbling journey because I thought I knew a little bit about wine, and by start making it. I realized very quickly how little actually I knew, which wasn't actually the worst part. The worst part actually came a little bit later. Uh, I think a little bit no. I mean, I'm known that I can taste fairly decent, and when you make wine, it tastes they taste totally different, mm-hmm. and uh, you see actually very quickly because you taste the wine in different stadiums. You taste it. You taste the berry first. You taste. Uh, right in fermentation, maybe after fermentation, then it tastes it in certain stadiums, um, you know, be doing spontaneous fermentation, so one barrel gets stuck in, in fermentation, what are you going to do? Uh, all these little decisions, and how, do, how, how does that taste? And then you taste with other winemakers on top of it, so they give you little tips and tricks, and it's just, uh, it's just such an unbelievable experience to me, and I learned so much in... In the wine knowledge, but also in tasting. Mm-hmm. And how did this project start? It started in Queens, in fact. In Queens? In Queens, yeah. I'm a, I grew up in Queens. Well, I'm a Queens boy. <laughs> I, I do that with Gerhard Kracher, you know, mm-hmm. and Gerhard is, uh, the Kracher family is obviously known for their uh, Trockenbrenner's Lazy, for their sweet wines. And he summers in Queens. No, he no. F- <laughs> <laughs> he came to America and um, he just flew into LaGuardia and he called me and I said, well, come. And I actually just came back from Argentina. And I got so inspired that I wanted to do something. And then I said, why don't we do something together? And I said, hmm, that's actually a really cool idea. And so we started elaborating because it's for him also a new field. And we went to the Weinviertel. So which, again, it's for us both a totally new land. And we worked ourselves into that. And we haven't launched a new... Right now we make two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't launched uh, the new vintages yet. So we fairly we took our time. But that just came from there Two week, uh, last weekend, and I tasted both wines, and I was just, you know, it's amazing to see basically how you work yourself up, and it's really exciting, those two wines now. Yeah, and you said that the, what you've learned is, has been very humbling. What what are the, the greatest lessons? Uh, it, it, are, they, are they just technical things that you didn't realize going into the wine, or, or practical things that you didn't think about, or are there, are there other things that, that you learned as well? I mean... 
I mean, there's just an ocean of those informations. You know, yeah. it's just starts about clonal selection. I mean, we have old vineyards. We didn't have to do that, but you have to look into that. How is, with which condition is the vineyard? Mm-hmm. Uh, when to spray, when not to spray, you know. We are not biodynamic uh, because uh, that's a couple of things. Also, in tasting-wise, you know, uh, i give you a great lesson. Uh, one of Gerhard's friends as a winemaker, as a red wine maker, said he complained, he's in Austria, he complained very hard. He said, I cannot understand how basically everybody's jumping right now on those Zweigels. Zweigel is a, a typical Austrian variety which brings normally like Chianti Classico style wines out. So suddenly said, I don't understand why suddenly you know everybody loves these Zweigels which taste like chili and Cabernet. And now I'm getting very technical. He said, look, what basically was done there, they was just made, they really were designed with that. You mm-hmm. add tannin and you add a little bit of residual sugar and suddenly they taste like that. But he said, Everybody loves them, and even sommeliers love them. And I said, tannin? You had tannin? I said, yeah. I said, well, I said, they don't even know how that tastes. I said, uh, to be honest, I don't even know that either. Would you show me? I said, hmm. I said, i show you something. I have six barrels uh, made for the cellar inspector, because in Austria we have a very, very tight wine law. Um, it's approved by him. He has, everything is numbered up. So we went there and tasted through that. It's amazing. Basically, like, it was eye-opening like, experience. And in fact... I came back, and then I think three months ago, I tasted with my sommeliers, and we tasted one wine from Argentina, mm-hmm. Malbec, and I said, and I, I spotted that immediately. You smell on it, and you, that little tone, you know exactly what you're looking for then. And I said, how do you like that? And everybody said, you know, it might be not the greatest uh, Malbec, but it's really delicious. And I said, you know what? Okay, look at this and this and this and this. And they said, yeah. I said, that's the tannin. It's wow. perfectly designed wine. I said, look, this wine you give in t- into a cocktail reception with 300 people, everybody's going to love it. They're going to love it. Yeah. But if you were to tell a sommelier before tasting it, this wine has, has tannin added to it, mm. they would, I think, immediately hate that wine. Or it would, would be, well, nobody uh, would touch that. No one would touch it. No one would be interested in it as, but, at all. But, you know, fascinating. That's, those are little technical components. Mm-hmm. Look. Where especially in really commercial, uh, you know, wineries, it's used. You know, small boutique wineries don't do that. Yeah. Now, tell us a little bit about your uh, your partnership with Zalto Glassware. It's uh, saying the name Zalto is enough to to make sommeliers kind of ooh and ah and get giddy and, and happy. It's I mean they are beautiful. I, I have some at, at home. Uh, thank you very much to. Uh, Mrs. Susan Satter, my girlfriend's mom, for buying us some as a housewarming gift. We, we love them. Um, but uh, tell us, how, how did this partnership come about? And God, why, how, how come they're so beautiful? They're, they're incredible. Um, well, growing up in Austria as a sommelier, and especially at my time, um, it was impossible to get the top, around the topic glassware. Because mm-hmm. look, you have a great wine, and if you have a bad glass you're not going to experience everything. Uh, it's like driving a car. If you have bad tires, you're not going to experience the car. That's what it comes down to. Or giving a little different analogy, driving with a car with winter tires or summer tires on, it's a total different driving. Um, that being said, on that, look, I grew up when Riedel glasses really came around. And I did tastings with Klaus Riedel. And where they basically poured one and the same wine in three different shapes of glasses, blind tasting. And he let people basically experience that. And people said, oh, you know, this must be a burgundy. It smells like Pinot Noir. The other one said, and the next class, yeah, but this class actually, this actually, this must be Bordeaux. 
And the other one thought on the third class, that could be only uh, Super Tuscan. It was one and the same wine. Mm-hmm. So and then I came to realize, wow, that makes, you know, that's an early stage. It's impressive. And then I was invited in 2007 uh, at a tasting where they said, you know, you have to come, you have to come. We have this new glass and it's just phenomenal. And it's the best glass in the world. And for me at that time, you know, uh, Riedel was without a doubt the leader, the hands down, there's no question. And then I came to that and saw basically the lightness, the, the elegance of that. I said, that's fantastic. So I said, but how do the wines perform? You know, I mean, we all have come very often around, you know, those perfectly designed things. And they're terrible when you use them. And I said, you know what? We're going to send you uh, some test glasses and you test and you tell us after. So... And I tested them, and I was basically really with everything. I traveled with them, too. I just put them loose in the back and traveled with them around uh, through the city. It's no really? problem. Because they're so thin. And yeah, but the elastic. Mm. You know, whatever is hard is very often st- might be sturdier, but the, the, it's, you can bend the glass. I mean, don't do that because uh, since they're so thin, you know, they, when they break, they're sharp like a knife. You can take your finger off in a heartbeat. Um, but I give you a good. St- I give you a true story. When I traveled to the food and wine festival up in Aspen, mm-hmm. I took two glasses with me loose. I just put them in a plastic bag. I just think in case, and you know you've changed uh, changed the plane in Denver and then come back. Uh, I have to admit, it, before I got I left the car, you know you lean always a little bit uh, when you open the door. You lean always on it into the middle, yeah. and there I, I leaned too hard on one. It, one broke. The other one survived. Wow. But until then, no problem. And in my book, in my bag, there's books and computer and everything. And there's never been a problem. Never no. been a problem, no. And uh, something else I admire about you is, is uh, and, and just the, you know, the, the things that La Bernadette does. So Restaurant Group is how involved you guys are with, uh, with charity. We were just at the City Harvest event, um, uh, which was amazing. $14,000 for a dozen cronuts. Uh, or that <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe that. I could not believe that. Uh, and then you, you donated a wine fridge filled with wine. Is that true? No, uh, my, no. my producer told me that. So yeah. I'm sorry about that. I donated uh, the wine tasting. You donated the 20. wine tasting, yes. And how did that do? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> pretty well pretty well it, there, did, it did okay <laughs> there there were some generous wealthy people at the yeah. at the uh city harvest event no look uh for me it's one thing i have always a hard time to donate uh money to to africa to other countries because i don't know where it goes the sad part and uh, living here long enough in new york you don't even have to look that far Sadly, you know, I mean, in New York, you know, you see an incredible amount of wealth. Mm-hmm. But if you just turn a little bit your head, you see also the other side. And I just walked not so long ago on 51st Street across and just went just off Park Avenue and I saw a huge line until basically one of these little cyc- uh, cyclists came with... Uh, with City Harvest on and then a new and that's basically right next to Park Avenue and that's basically shocking um, there's said you know look um, Eric Repair probably actually into that a little bit and it was eye opening and was you know it brought it down to reality I mean look we see our, I see basically every day you know very wealthy very rich people but look there's another side of life too and 
I can contribute to that and it makes me very happy that I can do something for a good cause. Yeah. It's it's extraordinary that the kind of impact that that City Harvest is having and yeah. the way that you're supporting City Harvest and Eric and you guys are raising a ton of money. You're doing incredible work. Um, and also, I'm going to see you on this Friday uh, with Fred Dexheimer um, for the for we're going to do an event at uh, uh, that you're hosting at Laburn Den called Glass by Glass, which supports. Uh, the Wagner program at NYU. Um, you've been doing it uh, several years at, at LeBurned, and uh, the Wagner program uh, deals with social entrepreneurship, which is fantastic that, that you guys are so involved in that as well. Yeah. How did you get involved with, uh, with Fred and, and Glass by Glass? Uh, Fred I know a long time ago. Actually, Fred I knew before even Evan. I knew way before I came to America oh. from competing. And... In fact, actually, Evan is made star wine in Philadelphia. And I got, it was basically an exchange, also a huge wine tasting for wine and co- a competition for wine. And I was one of the f- few people that flew over from Europe. And at the same time, you know, my flight back uh, was from JFK because they couldn't get one back from Philly. So that's where I met basically, um, had my first interview. And three months later, I came to America. Wow. So, yeah, Evan doesn't know that. <laughs> well, we'll have to share that story with him on Friday. Um, although some, one of, not only one of the most accomplished guys in the industry, uh, but also one of the very nicest. So thank, oh, well, thank, thank you thank you so much for, for being on the show. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.